Jesus is the light of the world. I know that by personal experience, so do you, but also by declaration in John's gospel, in his very reliable report on the life of Christ that John wrote, and that's available to us over these thousand years down to this very day. We've been looking at it slowly and carefully. Uh, John has already told us a few very profound things about this Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, For one thing, he said, Jesus is unique in that he has no beginning. He always was. But furthermore, he's unique in that though he had no beginning, he is the beginning of all things. He's the author. He's the agent of creation. And tonight, in a few verses, John will strongly and clearly make the case that Jesus is life and light. And apart from him, there is no life. There is no spiritual light. So we're going to take a look at it today. But before we get there, I want to mention something to you. John, the author, is Jewish. He's a Jewish fisherman, not entirely well-educated, but had a personal experience with this Jesus. And so he's equipped to tell us about him. He was familiar with the Jewish culture of the day and addressed many of his remarks in light of that. For instance, in the day, the Jews, rabbis, and others had a very high view of something called the Torah. Perhaps you've heard of that word, Torah. It's the first five books of our Bible or the Hebrew Scriptures. It's authored by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Jewish people in the day believed that those five books were the most powerful and influential of all, the most authoritative of all the collection of books found in the Hebrew Scriptures. And the reason they felt that is that they came from Moses, who received the law and was in the very presence of God on Mount Sinai. So in John's day, and it's carried on even today, the Torah is thought by Jewish people to be the source of light and life. Just to give you an illustration, I was reading uh, the other day online a very interesting interaction between a Jewish woman and her rabbi. She sent in a question online about the proper handling of the Torah, and the rabbi was kind enough to answer. I'd like to read you both. Here's the question the lady asked. She said, my husband and I are in the final stages of purchasing a Torah scroll. Perhaps you've seen that. The Torah, again, first five books of the Bible sometimes are written on parchment, animal skin, and they are rolled around rods and carried around the synagogue and shown respect. She said, we want to purchase a Torah scroll, which we intend on giving as a gift to our rabbi. Could you please advise us how to reverently handle the Torah and the protocol and laws involved as we give this special gift? Here's the rabbi's answer. What a thoughtful and precious gift. I'm sure your rabbi will be thrilled. The following are some basic guidelines for the proper handling of a Torah scroll and appropriate behavior in its presence. So here are some of the bullet points the rabbi shared. He said, a special place should be designated for storing the Torah while it's in your home. One must always be fully dressed, I hope so, and respectfully behaved while in the room where the Torah is being stored. So the designated room should be chosen accordingly, not the bedroom or the game room. I learned this as a young Jewish kid. When we had the Hebrew Scriptures, you never carry it into places like the bathroom. You never put it on the floor or anything like that. In fact, my rabbis told me you must not even carry a thought 
of the Torah with you in a place as profane as the bathroom. So you see these laws carry on down to this very day. The rabbi goes on to say, one may not sit or stand on a chair, uh, table, or bed on which the Torah is lying upon. So if the Torah is put on the bed, you are not. Uh, it says the Torah should always be held upright, resting against the right shoulder. You see what I mean? And if the Torah is not in scrolls, if it's in books, you know, the, the Old Testament part of the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, you never put anything on top of it nor turn it upside down. These are the laws. When the Torah is being carried from one place to another, says this rabbi, those nearby must rise and remain standing until the Torah reaches its destination or is out of sight. If the Torah was removed from its cabinet in a worship service and in a processional was marched around the congregation, which oftentimes happens, you would all stand and you could touch it. You could touch it with your hand, with your prayer book, something with your prayer shawl, and then you would kiss it so as to show respect for it. When the Torah is being transported, ideally, it should be held by a person instead of being placed on a car seat or in the trunk. A Torah scroll may never be placed on the ground. In fact, my rabbi said, if you drop the Hebrew scriptures on the ground, you have to fast the entire day so as to repent of your negligence in handling the Torah. That's the way it is. Folks, I'm telling you, being a Baptist is a piece of cake after all this. I'm I'm just trying to tell you. So no other item should be placed on top of a Torah. You just don't do this. A Torah should always be placed upright, never upside down or on its face. Best wishes, Rabbi Baruch S. Davidson. This is real stuff. And I remember all this as a Jewish kid. So the question this leads to is, why such respect is shown to the Torah? And the answer is, ancient rabbis, going back even to the time of John, talking about 2,000 years, believed that the Torah, the contents of the Torah, were light and life. Now, John, Yochanan, knowing about all this, says, hang on just a second, rabbis. It is not the Torah that is light and life. It's Jesus, the Messiah. And so John says this. Now we're in John chapter 1, verse 4. This is what John says in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Oh, the Torah is a blessing. It's God's written word, but it remains a closed book, doesn't it? unless the enfleshed incarnate word is able to illuminate it for you. The Bible today, precious though it is, is a closed book until you meet the author of the book, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the key to understanding it. And so John is making a strategic point. He is saying light and life is sourced. No, 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 not in the Bible. You can't access it until you know Jesus. He's the source of light and life. In fact, John essentially is uh, implying, apart from Christ, a person's dead in sin. And folks, uh, this leads me to say that the world in which we live in, don't you agree, is populated by many walking dead. You're not know, physically breathing, but spiritually incapacitated. A dead person could do nothing on his or her behalf. So when we think of the spiritual fruit of a relationship with Christ, the likes of love and joy and peace, goodness, kindness, self-control, these kinds of things, uh, the 
the majority of the population out there lacks these things. It's looking for these things, but in all the wrong places. And John says, in him, in a person, not a program, not a philosophy. In him was life. And this life, by the way, was the light of men. In fact, according to verse 5, if you care to look there, it says the light is shining in the darkness. Uh, Folks, the world is enveloped by the darkness of sin. But the light, according to what John says, continues to shine. So no matter how thick the darkness, the light continues to shine. Jesus was born in a smelly, dark manger. Jesus came into a very dark place, the world. And Jesus came as the light of the world. Now, I want to tell you something since we're on the subject of light. In the beginning, there was creation light. In fact, the first creative activity of God was to speak light into existence. I'll read it to you. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It says, the earth was formless and void. Darkness, that's the antithesis of light. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said... Let there be light. And you know what happened? There was light. God simply spoke it into existence. It was his first creative activity, and that is to speak light into existence. Now, in connection with this, I read an interesting article this week by a man named Stephen P. Wickstrom. I have no idea who he is, but he wrote a beautiful article entitled, Why God Made the Moon. And in it, Mr. Wickstrom reports on a study done by a scientist named Juna Kohlmeyer in the Carnegie Institution for, uh, from the Carnegie Institution for Science, and it was printed in the Astrophysical Journal. So we're talking some high science over here. And uh, Juna Kohlmeyer indicated that uh, scientists have found there to be 400% more light in the universe than can be explained by galaxies and quasars. I bet you didn't know that. Scientists found this out. There's much more light, said the researchers, than can be accounted for by stars, sun, moon, and stars. And uh, Kohlmeyer, the author of the research, said, it's as if you're in a big, brightly lit room, but you look around and you see only a 40-watt light bulb. Where is all the rest of that light coming from? Well, folks, the answer to the researcher's question is simply found in the passage we just read. God said, let there be light. He's the explanation for the light there is in the universe. Now, why does the light in the universe exceed that which is attributable to the stars? It's easy, because God created light before he created sun, moon, and stars. So the quantity of light in the cosmos is not directly attributable to light bearers. It's attributable to almighty God. So in the beginning of time, there was creation light. In the end, of time, there will be light of a different sort. You can read about it. I'll read it for you. Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. And there in that day, in the future, will no longer be any night. Think about it. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun. Why not? Because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. That's us. 
There'll be no need for light as we know it because the light of the world, the Lord Jesus, will dwell literally in our presence and he will illuminate all things. So here's my point. In the beginning, in the past, was creation light. In the future, someday, there will be glory light. And you and I are stuck in the middle. Creation light at the beginning, glory light in the end, and we are implanted in a time now characterized by darkness. Increasing, in fact, spiritual darkness in our reality. And the darkness is absolutely hostile to the light. In fact, the darkness, spiritual darkness of our day is so hostile to the light, it seeks to extinguish the light. This is the time in which the prince of darkness, Satan, is really, really let loose to blind and to tempt and to lie and to make every effort to put the light out. But notice this in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Your Bible may render it a little differently. For the word comprehend might say, and the darkness could not extinguish, and the, and the darkness could not extinguish it. So this word comprehend has two renderings, but I think they're both right. One means to grasp intellectually. People couldn't do it. When Jesus appeared... You know, they said things to him like, who are you? (laughs) Aren't you the the, the carpenter's son? Remember what they said? Can any good thing come from where you come, from insignificant Nazareth? Remember when they accused him of all manner of things and called him names? They called him liar and lunatic and all the rest. Their mind could not grasp who Jesus is genuinely was. That's what this verse means. But also, it means physical grasping of the Son of God. The world's forces made an attempt to literally grasp on to Jesus and extinguish the light by publicly executing him, but it failed. Verse 5 is a very hopeful victory verse. The light is shining, and the darkness has no capacity to overwhelm it. Jesus is the light who cannot be put out by the darkness. People in sin don't really understand Jesus. You and I didn't. And the world forces of evil are trying to extinguish the light, but they're going to fail at it. You can't get rid of Jesus, who is the light of the world. They tried to, ultimately, through crucifixion. But you know about this, the darkness did not prevail because on the third day he rose up from the darkness of death. Did he not? It's the resurrection that's the number one victory of the light over darkness. The darkness, in fact, can resist the light. It's doing it in our day, but it can never extinguish the light. One thing is clear, there's conflict between light and darkness. It's a dark world. If you're sensing it, you're right to sense it. There's a spiritual battle going on between entities behind the scenes, between Satan, prince of darkness, and Savior, Jesus, who is the light of the world. I'm telling you it affects us, and it affects all Christians worldwide. To feel put upon and oppressed by the darkness, to be disturbed by it, is normal and understandable. That's the reality in our in-between existence. We are now living between Creation light at the beginning and glory light 
in the end. And the darkness is waging war against the light, but it will lose the war. Folks, all the darkness of hell cannot extinguish the light. Listen, you can walk into an intensely dark room. You can almost feel the heaviness of the darkness, but all it takes is a little flick of the light switch. And even if it's just a 40-watt light bulb, just a little light, the darkness is extinguished. You see, the darkness cannot put out the light, but the light is a much more powerful force. So it really looks like Satan is on the offensive and winning. It looks like the anti-light, anti-Christ forces of the day are winning. My goodness, every mooring point that we value because Christ values it is being challenged, not the least of which is the sanctity of human life or the sanctity of marriage. And it looks like Satan is winning all this, but I'm telling you it's not true. The kingdom of darkness is very, very weak. We ought not give it more credit Uh, than it deserves. Folks, all it takes is a little light, even our little light, to extinguish the darkness. Darkness simply doesn't have the power to put out God's light. So I'd like for you uh, to think about this. Um, Something very, very dramatic happened the moment you, if you did, accepted Christ. I'm finding out, I'm discovering more and more about salvation as I... Uh, reap the rewards thereof. Uh, Salvation shouldn't be reduced simply to the forgiveness of sin, although, wow, that would be enough. Can you imagine that we could go free with a pardon from God? By the way, I want to offer to you a very simple way to get a conversation about the Lord started. And I'll repeat that over the next weeks and months and John again and again and again and again because I'd like for you to get it. I've tried this out and it works. You simply say to people, can I tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me? That's what you do. Can I, this is very simple. You don't, you don't need anything with you. It's just you. Can I tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me? It's when I realized that almighty God would forgive all of my sins and wrongdoing through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all you say. I tried this out. I experimented. Uh, we ordered a pizza not long ago. And this lady dropped it off, rang the doorbell. So I went there. She's busy, has to make a living. You know what I mean? And we're busy. We want to eat the pizza. So uh, she had no time for me, and I didn't have much time either. But I tried this out. I said, well, I know you're busy. But let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I didn't even ask her. She said, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Who's going to say no? She probably thought I meant the lottery. I won the lottery or something. Who knows? Can I, let me just tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's when I realized that God would forgive all of my sin, all of my wrongdoing through my faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as a substitute for my sin. She stopped what she was doing, opened up her heart, and we spoke for about 30 minutes. I got to share Let's call it the fuller gospel with her. It opened up all kinds of things. I tried it again. I was on a roll. UPS man came to drop off. Who knows what? 
So I said, you know, I know you're busy. I really admire the efficiency with which you people do what you have to do. Get parcels all around the world to people like me. But I got to tell you, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I said the same thing. It's when I discovered that God would forgive all of my sin, all of my wrongdoing through my faith in Jesus Christ, his son, who died as my substitute on the cross. And he said, that's nice. See ya. So it doesn't always lead to great, great things, I'm telling you. But what a good thing. I had no tract handy. I didn't have my Bible with me, no concordance, no nothing like that. Just me, just a, hey, could you do me a favor? Could you turn to the person next to you? I just want to see if you remember what I just said here. We'll go over it again. Hey, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. You just try that out. Go ahead and say that to the person next to you. Okay, and now you tell them. You, you, you just tell him. It's when I found out that God would forgive all my sin through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do that. Yeah, yeah. See how easy it is? Let me tell you something. If it's not simple to communicate, you won't and neither will I. You won't and neither will I. You'll say, oh, man, this person's on the go. This person's busy. This is no time to do anything. I'm telling you, it's a simple thing. Hey, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I'm telling you, it takes 30 seconds. 30 seconds. We know God, the Spirit, does the work of evangelism. We don't do that. And I'm telling you, there could be conversation, the likes of which is just phenomenal. I'm going to tell you, some time ago, I shared that with my sister, uh, my remaining sister. My other one is deceased, and my oldest sister is now 81 years old. And I'm pleased to tell you, three weeks ago, when I spoke to her on the phone, she said, I have accepted Jesus as my Savior. 81. 81. And she said, she's in a nursing home. She said, I'm going to be baptized. A local pastor is coming to this place she can't get out of a wheelchair. In a wheelchair. We've done that here. In a wheelchair. He's going to help her into the, a, a baptistry uh, there on site and baptize, uh, baptize her. Never too early. Never too late. Folks, I got to tell you something. Uh, what are you and I going to do now that we're in between creation light and glory light? What are we going to do? Are we going to just get depressed, cynical, angry, disgusted, protest? You know what I mean? Sign petitions. I mean, I get laddered up about all this stuff. <clears throat> what if we told people about the light? What if that was our mission? Oh, my goodness. You know, can I tell you something? I mean, no offense to the Lord Jesus, but in a sense, he is not directly the light. Did you know that? He has enlightened us so that we would reflect his light to the world. Did you know that? That's why. Remember that young little children's song, This Little Light of Mine? I'm going to let it shine. You say, oh, man, it's just me. My light is just a little. How much light do you need to illuminate a whole room? Just a little bit of light dispels the darkness. Please don't discount the light with which the Lord Jesus Christ has enlightened you. I challenge you. Most exciting, most wonderful thing in the world to tell people about the light. You know what happens regardless of their response? Your convictions are demonstrated and deepened. When you publicly stake out your belief in Jesus, the light, it strengthens you. It doesn't matter how they respond. I challenge you. Listen, ask God this week to give you at least one opportunity to say to someone, hey, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I don't even ask them, can I tell you? What if they say no? I just say, hey, 
before you go, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Now, it doesn't hurt also to give a tip. I gave a good tip to this lady before I did all, all this. You know what I mean? Folks, this is our job. Now, I'm going to tell you one thing. Um, salvation is a miracle that's been performed in our life. Oh, this is where I, was, I started. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. It's a major transfer um, of our spiritual location. Listen, I've got to tell you something. Before we came to know the light, we were in darkness. That's why we can't look down on anybody who presently is. I mean, that was us. And when we accepted Christ, who is the light of the world and the life, he transferred us from one domain to another. This is not my thinking. This is what the Bible says. Listen to this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. I'm working on getting it in my head, and I'm a little slow on the draw, but I I think it goes like this. For he uh, rescued us. He rescued us from the domain, get this, of darkness. And what did he do? He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what the father did. He rescued, he delivered us from one domain To what? Be in a vacuum? No, 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 no. To be in another domain. What is that domain? The kingdom of the beloved son. So at one time, we were, whether you know it or not, subjects of the prince of darkness. I must tell you this. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but it's true. If you're here tonight, you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not a Christian. You're not saved. You're under someone's governance, influence, prince of darkness. You're in a domain characterized by spiritual darkness, which is why you're not doing too good. When you accept Jesus, he he picks you up and he moves you from this domain, this sphere of influence. You're no longer a subject to the one who has dominion over darkness. Now he moves you to a different domain and you're dominated now uh, from by Jesus who is who is light. That's why you, if you're a saved person, you now think differently, you act differently, you behave differently. That's not you making decisions. That's the fact, that's evidence of the fact that you're under the influence of a new leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Folks, I got to tell you, if you've not accepted Christ, I got to, do you have a minute? Let me tell you the greatest thing that ever happened to me. As a lost person, absolutely looking for peace, joy, control of my own passions in all the wrong places. I'll tell you what happened to me. When I found out that almighty God was willing to forgive all my stuff through the sacrifice of his own son on a cross instead of me. That was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And I didn't know all the ramifications thereof. But I found out, oh my goodness, it meant not only that I'd be forgiven, it meant that I would be moved from darkness to light. It meant that the source of light, the Lord Jesus would give me an enlightened life through which I would live entirely different. So my question is, do you think he would do that for you? Would he do it for you? Or is a guy like me special? 
Did he pick me out (laughs) because I'm better than you? Did he pick me out because I had something more to offer him than you? I'm tempted to say, yeah. But it's not true. I told you this one time. I was in a, a room once and I had gotten drunk uh, the night before. And uh, I fell on the floor of the room in which I lived. Um, it was a tile floor, not carpeted. I fell. And my hands, I got there before my face, so I didn't hurt myself. But I didn't wake up till the next morning. And I couldn't remove my face from the tile floor because it was stuck to it in a pool of my own dried vomit. No, the light did not forgive me because I had much to offer. I stooped to the gutter. I was in, as David said, the miry clay. You are too, maybe. No, I'm not where I am because God saw any virtue or nobility in me. He saw a, a, a guy stuck to the floor in a pool of his own dried vomit. And that guy cried out to him one time, help me, oh God. Look That's what, at, at what has become of my life. And when I found out that that God who I was crying out to stood very willing to forgive all my stuff and lift me up from vomit, make me to be a child, adopt me into his family, cast all my sins behind his back, and shed his light in my life so that my mind would be entirely different, my convictions, my values, my priorities, I would be saved not only from his wrath, I would be saved from bondage to my own sin. And he moved me from that darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Would he do that just for me or would he do it for you if you asked him? I challenge you, ask him. Lord Jesus, would you read the hearts of those in our midst tonight, wonderfully here for various reasons. Some know what I'm talking about for they have experienced this transfer, this rescue. They have come to you, the light of the world, and you've given life. But there are others, I'm sure, here, sprinkled around the room, who for whatever reason are here. Maybe a friend brought them, I don't know. No, God, I didn't want to display the uh, depravity to which I stooped except to show people nobody has anything over them in terms of virtue, nothing like that. No, God, you came to save sinners. And I pray, oh, God, not one who is a sinner here would leave here with the burden of his or her sin on his own shoulders, but rather that he or she would transfer all that to your shoulders. You bore our sin on the cross, O God in heaven. You're the Savior. And so in the power of your spirit, I pray you would disturb uh, the one or two or more who are here tonight so that they would not leave as they came in. 
they would give you a chance not only to forgive them but to move them from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son in whom there is light. Then for the rest of us, oh God, help us not to slow down, get stuck, be filled with animosity and anger and all the rest that sort of extinguishes the fire. Help us to know in this parentheses we live in between creation light and glory light, we have lots to do. For you tell us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We have plenty to do. Oh, God in heaven, help us to be better as Christians, better light bearers until the time of your return. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.